Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Hello, it's Graham. I'm your host. This is the big interview, just as we're coming to, towards the end of the football season. We're reaching the end of year seven of the big interview. There'll be a brief gap in the summer coming relatively soon. We've still got a socio Q&A um, to record ahead of the Champions League final. But you're about to listen to the last guest-oriented big interview of the season I'm delighted that we managed to pin down Chinedem Onua. This is a guy whose voice on radio and television, I think, has added freshness and clarity. I find him an interesting broadcaster. And on your behalf, listeners, I wanted to, to meet him and get him to explain himself a little bit. A little bit, obviously, about his backstory, but equally somewhat about how he approaches analysis of football. To try and lift a lid and find out what kind of man he is so that we understand... Who is this guy who I think speaks with um, a lot more logic and clarity in his analysis, a lot more preparation than we're used to with many of his fellow professionals, unfortunately. So given that we thought that Chineda Manua is one of the most interesting new voices on television or radio, we wanted to know about his interesting backstory. He and his family arrived in Manchester from Nigeria when, when he was a very young boy. And everything was oriented around Manchester City, the, the old Manchester City. He was a supporter, if, if not necessarily a diehard passionate one, a ball boy, an academy member. And finally he became a first team player, just as City was changing into one of the powerhouses of both English and European football. That relationship is a central part of this first section of the interview. It's a central part of his identity. His experiences in Manchester... The slightly different path that he took, thanks to his pretty extraordinary parents, I would argue. Well, they're well worth listening to, and you're about to find out in part one of the big interview meets Chinedem Onua. (music) 
uh, listeners, um, I, I, uh, I should describe the scene because most of you can't see it. We're in an industrial building looking like a converted factory. It's probably not, but we're in the heart of Manchester. And we're here to speak to somebody who you know, has his heart in Manchester, grew up here. I'd like to say is legendary at Manchester City, <laughs> and I believe it. We're partly here because uh, Nida Manoa has been... Um, an extremely able, intelligent footballer for years, a leader at QPR. But he's becoming somebody that we hugely enjoy listening to when he talks about football analytically or in a discursive way. You'll often see him on the BBC. You'll sometimes hear him on Radio 5 more, I wish. First of all, have I screwed up before, I, before I've begun properly? I'm going to say that you are Needham Onua rather than Nedham. I'm Nedham. Nedham. Nedham Onua. Nedham Onua. But it comes from a longer, a more... Just Chinatum, recently, yeah. we, we've, we've had Gerald Floyd Hasselbank on our series. Right. He's largely known as Jimmy. A couple of weeks ago, we sat a long time with Jacob Stam, yeah. commonly known as Yap. Yeah. What's your first name? My first name is Chinatum. And tell us, what does it mean? It means God guides me. So uh, I've got three sisters... And they all have chi in their name as well. And this is with, with an Igbo culture. Like, you put that in. Because we're a family of faith. So, I'm Chinatum. Um, there's Choma, there's Chidinma, and there's Chiamaka. So, there's something that links us all, and it's through faith. Not to say that necessarily in this moment, like, we have the same level of faith as our parents did. Mm-hmm. But in the same breath, that's something that unites us all. So, that is my name. But, you know, people struggle saying Natum. So to be throwing Chinatum out there, like I think it just adds uh, adds a bit too much to. If you were coming through now as a five year old Nigerian who'd moved to Manchester, I don't think you'd think twice about saying my name is Chinatum. No, not at all. Now, at all. no, that's to be honest. That's what it. That's what it was when I first came to England. This was I was five six years old when I first moved to Manchester, and I was Chinatum. But in time, it became Nedum. Became shorter. Some people call me Ned now. You know, it gets shorter and shorter. Um, but. Like I say, it's, it's just one of those things. I think as long as people acknowledge who you are, and it's a shame because at times it feels like I turn my back on my history, but every time I come across somebody who's from Nigeria, they will know, and they know me, they call me Chinatum. They don't say Nadum, they don't say Ned, they say Chinatum because it's that's a, what it it's is. It's a beautiful name, and it's a beautiful reason to be called Chinatum. Mm. If, you, if you screw up your, your mind really hard and you go back to the first... Because I would imagine your your real rather than imagined memories of mm. Nigeria are minimal. Very minimal, yeah. But if if you really scrub your concentration and think back to when you're six or seven, and the things that hit you most about life in Manchester, life in England, compared to whatever you, whatever memories you had or what you've been told about Nigeria, the starkness of the changes. Yeah. It, d- does any of that rest with you in your brain somewhere? So bits that have been planted in my memory was mm-hmm. when I first went to school, I went with like two or three jumpers because it was so cold. This was September in Manchester, so it's really not even that cold in the grand scheme of things. And then from there, it was the difference in terms of what it looked like. Say I was, the school wasn't very diverse, the area wasn't very diverse. That was a common theme that existed through my time in Manchester, all the places I lived in. It's either been one family or two families, basically, that are not non-white essentially um, there was being in, in that house trying to figure out a new way of life but then also my parents working all the time when we were in Nigeria we had house helps and so on Yeah. but in Manchester we didn't have that so a lot of stuff was being 
like not burden as such, but we had to grow up quite quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was walking myself and my sister to school, the bus situation, because my parents were working extra hard just your, to stay Your dad afloat, would basically. teach and then come home and rest and then work most That's of the night. That's right, yeah. My dad would be, my dad was, um, was a high school teacher. And then he'd come back home at, say, 5, 6 o'clock, go to sleep for, like, a couple of hours, and then go to work for Royal Mail, mm. just on Oldham Road in Manchester, from, say, 10 o'clock until 5, 6 in the morning, before then going out to school again at 8 o'clock. By anybody's standards... It's insane. That's a brutal regime. Yeah, Particularly so for somebody who'll spend the remainder of that day not only trying to educate people, yeah. but being pestered by yeah, pupils exactly. where you need all your yeah, strength exactly, and resources yeah. around you. Exactly, but that... This is, I think this was the thing with my parents, they were both very well educated. My mum had a, a PhD in environmental sciences, yeah, doctor, and she made sure everyone knew she was a doctor as well, yeah. which looking back makes perfect sense. Um, but they, they wanted us to be well educated, they wanted to put us into a private school, but the sad fact was they weren't able to really afford it. So they had to work extra hard just to get to the point where they could get support from the school for us to go. So for us as kids, like me as a parent now, like, if I'm seeing my kids not really bothered about school, I'm thinking, ah, no, this doesn't feel right. But I didn't understand that back then, but I do get it now. Because my mum as well, she was working away most of the time. And, you know, they did look after us. It wasn't like we were neglected or anything. No. But it was, it was pretty intense. And at the time, in Miles Plasson, where we lived, people were like... My, my, I remember mum and dad, they said they never wanted to get a new car because they were worried about what would happen. So one time they got a new car through their work... And they, they say they tried to stay awake all night to make sure nothing happened to it. They fell asleep mm. for a couple of hours. The tyres were stolen, the car was set alight. Mm. That's the type of area it was that we lived in. You know, we were burgled by our neighbours and the like. Mm. So this life that we had in Nigeria, which was more comfortable, you know, that was completely out the window as soon as we arrived in Manchester. What was going on in the neighbourhood? Was it just a little bit bumpy and people getting by? Or was it a degree of which the new faces, the Nigerians, were being targeted? I think there was a bit of that because we were different. Like mm. in the areas, that I lived in Miles Platin, lived in Harper Hay, and live at, and Harper Hay. I live in Middleton now. Mm. And those first two areas, when we were first there, there wasn't diversity. There wasn't a ton no. of diversity. There's a lot more now, yeah. especially in Harper Hay. Like it's a completely different feel to it. But if you look back at sort of early to mid '90s England, if you are like a black family as such in a completely white area you're not really going to be accepted in the closer manner, let's say, that you would be at this time, even though it's not perfect. Back then, it's like you're, it's like you're almost being pointed at saying, oh, look at these guys. Identity and the things we've begun to talk about mm. um, are a big part of kicking back. Yes. Your autobiography. Yes. Which we're going to rely on yes. and mention a lot through this podcast. And having read it, I would urge people not only to go out and buy it, but to talk about it. And, and hopefully some of these briefing notes that we're preparing for you, and we, there will be questions at the end, so pay attention at the back. <laughs> it, it's, it's been quite a mixed experience. Yeah. And if Chinedam says God is guiding me, then he, he tested you occasionally. <laughs> but I want to test you first now. Sorry, I, I didn't mean any comparison. Uh-oh. I'm up there, sorry. Oh, no, 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 I think this is... Let's say, I don't know if we want to start with um, Bradford Road, Miles yeah. um, Platting. Mm-hmm. But I have heard you talk about, eventually your parents do get you to a private school where I guess you're dressed pretty immaculate. The colour was the blazer? Yeah, it was a black blazer. Black blazer, but you're pretty spruce. And because your parents are working their socks off, quite often, if I understand correctly, you'd have had to get yourself either from, again, my pronunciation, is it Hume School? Hume Grammar School, yeah. Hume Grammar School, 
or from your home yeah. to and from training yeah. at the City Academy yeah. via public transport. Yes. And it's my imagination, like for example, one of our guests, David Weir, talked us through the era in the 80s when there weren't mobile phones or internet or any of that shit, and he was given a scholarship in an American college that he didn't know where it was. Yeah. He had to fly across the Atlantic, turn up America. He missed a couple of connections. He was completely alone in America, and he had to figure out a way to get to the place where somebody might remember to come and meet him a couple of days later, and it yeah. kind of worked. Now, your journey wasn't maybe quite that epic. Not but quite, no. I guess it was full of many risks. Yes. In that... Looking spruce like that Mm -hmm. and going, I guess, with a kit bag to and from, you you must have stood out. There must have been people who wanted to just take the mickey or Mm -hmm. that bullying. But also, like you talked earlier about, if you missed a bus, you had to work out how to get next one, how to get home. Yeah. Probably four or five times a week, every week. Yeah. What bus route, what bus number, what were those journeys like? Okay, so those journeys, like if my parents could take me to school, they they would have done. But firstly, like, you know, they were... Um, I've got three sisters as well, so they can't be everywhere all at once. My youngest sister, though, she had a different experience as we got older, but it's because she's 10 years younger. So I'd be, I'd get outside the house. This was actually in Harper Hay, and I'm getting on the 163, uh, maybe the 17, and these are things taking you into Manchester City Centre. So I'm technically driving away, going away from the direction of uh, school. And then from there, I'm either going into Piccadilly Gardens or I'm having to cross over the road... Um, just shy of the city centre and like running probably three, four hundred metres to then get on the 180, the 183, uh, the 181. There's a 77, I think it was, because these were all the buses that would go up the road towards Oldham and give me the chance to get into school on time. It was always so tight, you know, as a, as a youngster, my time management wasn't perfect. So it was always so, so tight. But through all that, it, it helped me be creative yeah. because if I missed the bus, what time's the next bus? Does it go to the right place? Do I need to get one to this place to go to this place to go to wherever? And then when the drama's finished, when I've made it to school, if I had training and I need to get there, then I'm taking the, those same buses back into the city centre to get the 111 across to Platte Lane. And those sessions could finish quite late, so you find a way back and I could get the 149 back, but it's a bit slower. So I had to sort of plan things out from a very, very young age. You know, whatever they could come and pick me up and stuff, that was what they would do, but was always very complex and the one time to be fair you mentioned how I'd look weird in my in my get up the one time where I looked really really weird was the fact that the school would play on Saturdays but they'd make us wear uniform so all the schools just people turn up but I'd regularly say finish the game on a Saturday take the bus into the city centre so now it's like one o'clock in Manchester city centre I'm in my uniform with mud smeared across my head like dirty elbows everything and I'm just like, yeah, just, you know, it's just, yeah, I've just been to school and this is what I do now. I almost look at, like a lost child. Like, why, why am I here? Why am I doing this? One of the things, I mean, it, this is an abrupt um, leap now, but, and, and for those who've listened to our podcast a lot, I'm sorry. Tell us anecdote a lot about um, Thomas Tuchel when he was the Dortmund manager and I was in a conference in Berlin, a Spire conference, and he talked about that, how he'd made his way at Mainz and he'd been a revolutionary youth coach where mm. he'd said everything must be you know, Rolls Royce for my kids because I want them treated like the first team and blah, blah, blah. Everybody who's heard that anecdote before, sorry, but he went on about, like, I fought for them and I gave them a brilliant yeah. boss and the right hotel and they, I wanted to show them what the first team life would be. He said, now, he said, we churned out people who were spoiled, who didn't have solutions, mm. who weren't resourceful. Mm-hmm. Now, he said, I would my turn, you know, the power off in the hotel or yeah, yeah, put the aircon off or tell them the bus was broken down and say, I mean, it's none of my business, you find it. blah, blah, blah. 
now at City, right now, we, we have a friend of the podcast who's got twins. Won't be difficult to guess who that is. You are playing very well at City, and he talks about the way in which at 10, 11, 12, they're asked to make, they're given a briefing about a training session or a next opponent, wherever it might be, and then a day later, they're asked to, to congeal that information they've been given and make a presentation to their teammates. Mm-hmm. Just to teach them about That's not good. being shit scared and That's good. talking, presenting, actually processing information. Then I suppose having to live on your wits in order to catch all the bosses and think about timing and cope with feeling a little bit strange on a Saturday or late at night. Yeah. These, you don't know it at the time, but didn't it teach you resourcefulness yeah, that you 100%, needed? Yeah, 100%. It sort of makes you just a little bit more streetwise as well. You know, if everything is going to be done for you, like, I'm not 100% against it as such, because if you've got the right things within, within you, it's fine. But you, having to figure out things, being a problem solver, this is stuff that I had to do, like, even to fast forward a significant amount within my, uh, mm. within my life. So I went to Hume Grammar School for those five years. But then when I came in full-time with City as a youth team player, we had to go to Zavarian College. And I went there, and before you know it, the difference between Zavarian College and Hume Grammar School was like two completely different worlds. And as well, I was training not full-time, so college wasn't really as often as I would have done if I was in sixth form at my old school. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget this. I think we were doing business studies, and the teacher said, right, the way this is going to work, whatever grade you get in year one, you can expect to drop a grade for year two because this is how tough it is and this is the way the system works. And I was like, why? He said, well, this is what it is. And I think a lot of people within that room just accepted that's what it was because that's the guidance, that's what it is. I went from a B in year one to an A in year two because I just worked it out. But for what? people, you don't need to work out if someone tells you this is what's going to happen. So first of all, what kicked in was stubbornness. Because like, what's, secondly, he, what's he talking about? Like, what's he talking about? Like, Bullshit. Exactly. Like, it's a, such an easy thing to say to all those kids, and it just made them not try as hard. It dulls their expectations. Yeah, like, it's going to get harder. Say it's going to get harder, but then if you work harder, then you can maintain whatever you're at or achieve more. Give them aspiration. Give them exactly. A, don't say the path is dangerous, so don't go down it. Just like, you know, he, he was basically saying, plod along, turn yeah, up, accept exactly. the grade down, and then see you yeah, later, exactly. folks. Exactly. And interestingly, at that point, I did better for my A-levels than did my GCSEs when I had the most support when I was at private school but then from GC, from A-level time I was playing football and I was having to do a lot of catch-up because we couldn't be at all the lessons but the fact is like you know it's different for every single person but trying to figure stuff out like I'm a very logical person like mm-hmm. deeply logical and I think when logic goes out the window that's when I probably struggle the most because I can't really have a conversation with someone because they'll only be like not that I can't have a conversation with someone like say we talk about football all the time mm-hmm. But I enjoy the conversations with people more where maybe they acknowledge that what they're saying is purely emotional mm-hmm. as opposed to delivering their emotions as logic. This is why this has happened. And I'm like, but is it though? And at that point, there's a lot of hostility that sort of gets delivered because you always deliver it like an emotional point passionately and a logical one in a calm manner. To pick up on a theme we've often had in this podcast and, and you share something with Pep Guardiola, which is beyond Manchester City, which is being a ball boy. Yeah. I always find that fascinating because mm-hmm. I think if you're a kid, boy or girl of, of any ability, you probably aspire. You, you, yeah. I, you know, I still dream, at, you know, nearly however old I am about you know, not, nodding home a winner. There's still time. Maybe to be a ball boy, but n- not for the dreams I have. <laughs> Most of the dreams I have anyway. Um, 
But when you're a ball boy, there's pressure. Yeah. You get abused. Yeah. Right? Yeah. First of all, you've got to cope with the feeling that everybody's watching when they're not. Yeah, yeah, There'll yeah. be a section of about 20 people yeah. who, if they've got nothing better to do and then they'll, they'll draw. They are. Yeah. Then I'm going to ask you about like returning the ball. Was yeah. there any policy about when and how and what did you take? And being a ball boy. Yes. Tell us a little bit about, especially in the era you were a ball yeah. boy, when things weren't fantastic. No, City. things were not fantastic for City. So this is um, this is at Main Road, and this is when they were in what is League One now, so they're in Division Two. So the club was on a bit of a down, downward spiral. The games they were playing weren't as big as say they would have liked to have seen at that stadium. But coming through the academy, thinking you have the opportunity to do it, firstly it got you an extra ticket for the game, and secondly that feeling that I'll never forget, like. You'd open up the door and the players are coming out just down the tunnel and you're right there. You're seeing both sets of players. You're hearing the crowd, the excitement. Like If you're a fan, you come into the stadium through the turnstiles, you go along the, the sides to get your drinks and you sit in your seat. Like, I, I was seeing parts of the stadium that I never would have been able to see otherwise. I was really, really intimately close to it. Sounds and smells of football. Like, you, yeah, you talk the podcast it, yeah. Love, so, Sounds and smells of football are yeah. really interesting and really evocative. They yeah. live with you forever. Exactly. It's really exciting. Like if, if other people could have seen what I saw in that time, I think they'd love the game even more. Yeah. Because you can see what the players are really like. Because when you go out in the field, like you're performing and so on, and some people like they play up to the crowd and like, but when you see them behind the scenes, and at this point, when they didn't have a ton of cameras down the tunnels, mm-hmm. Like this is what it was. You're picking up who's this, who's that. People saying hello to you and things. It's it's really exciting. Before the rest of this big interview, I'd like to tell you that our entire archive of audio and video content is now on our new YouTube channel. We've begun filming all of our interviews, and there are already loads of clips with guests, including Rio Ferdinand, Connor Cody, Brendan Rogers, and Jamie Carragher, plus full interviews for you to watch and to share. Please do share with friends. Go to YouTube and search Graham Hunter, or click on the link in the show notes to this episode and become a subscriber. I honestly think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Explain this Doctor Who thing to me because I'm a weirdo, so it may just be me. I accept that. Okay. So if, if, if it is just me, don't be scared of saying it's just you. Okay. But like, even when I was a kid, and probably now, when you see players from far away, and Father Ted have taught us, you know, far away doesn't mean they're smaller. But when, you, when I look at players far away, they seem gigantic. Yeah, yeah. And then you go close to them, and they actually seem normal and yeah. small. No, it's a thing, because most people aren't enormous. Like, say, for example, a player that people love in England now, like Thiago Silva. 
I, saw, I was in a tunnel with him um, at the FA Cup semi-final the other day. I was like, he's literally like 5'10". And he looks like he could blow away in the wind. But his presence, ah, that's the thing. Okay. For some of these guys, it's presence. Because when you're out there on the field playing against them, the way they can move their bodies and hold people off, yeah. that's, what, that's what can make them appear so big. And he also plays shoulders back. and exactly. he's like, He looks like an emperor. He looks like Charlemagne. Exactly. Like, what am I going to do it's, it's definitely with my thing. kingdoms now? It's definitely a thing. And then there'll be someone who's actually big. And then you'll see them in real life and be like, yeah, this guy's pretty big. But you're a big guy anyway, so that's probably why everyone seems small to you. Yeah, but I don't get to stand in those tunnels in, in Premier League. Yeah, games, when, so. he, when, he's, when he's standing in those tunnels and uh, you've just walked out and you see that your assignment is you're marking player X and you stand and player X is like massive you're like well okay. I would have preferred it if he was a bit smaller in real life <laughs> but here we are what was the so coping with the noise coping with feeling like you were the focus and were there any policies about when the ball was given back and when it wasn't because we've spoken now yeah and, and I mentioned Pep at the start because he was famously a ball boy at camp now and passionate and running on the pitch and shrewd about like his, his one touch return of the ball marked him down even then as a ball boy but we talked to ball boys you'll admit and people who've gone on to professional football careers you're like we were taught yeah, exactly how slowly you yeah, go back yeah. when you fail your throw and do you know that is an important thing but I was behind or to the side of one of the goals so I think when you're on the on the sidelines like maybe you are trying to get it in quicker because it's like start attack slow the game but for me the only person that was really going to be critical to me was a goalkeeper whether they want a ball quickly for a goal kick or something was like that was it Nicky Weaver? it was Nicky Weaver and I was a ball boy in the north stand because that's where the away fans were as well. So I was getting the quote-unquote best version of whatever (laughs) fan base would be arriving at the stadium. So I was just kneeling there, taking abuse, getting a bit from the City fans, a bit of praise and whatever. And all the while, like, thinking, oh, I need to get this ball, I need to get this ball. But then also, from where I was, like, if if it's an average shot, it's just going to bounce off the advertising hoardings, isn't it? So I really had to be going and getting the ball from the crowd and the like, which was probably, um, for such a young man, it's probably a bit, um, I wouldn't say naive to find myself in that situation. But Dangerous. It was, yeah, it was a good test. And, and there weren't so many footballs in them days. No, 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 no. They, they really were not. But again, it was a great experience because it gave me a taste. Like if I wasn't in the academy and I was just a ball boy, then that's one thing. But to be in the academy, to be a ball boy, to be watching the teams play and to be aspiring to be there, mm. like you notice everything. You hear the noise and you're like, oh, I would love to be on that field doing this. And you try and be as involved as possible, I'd say. So it's aspirational. Essentially, um, yeah. You know, we've already mentioned, and I need to ask you a question that isn't scheduled here at all, but I need to know, that your book, Impressive, Beautifully Bound and Published, and that, that counts these days because you're competing. Your book, Kicking Back, is out now. People can buy it. Short term, I think you a fix of you. They can go to Kickback, the podcast, mm. which is very, very good. One of whose episodes is with uh, Les Chapman, yeah. um, legendary kit man, as he's called. And That's I serious. said I would mention this. Never met Aidan Hogarth, but Skits Beats, the music. Yeah, um, he's podcast is very, very good indeed. The thing I want to know is, is academy life. Yes. When you speak to Les, there's a little bit in the podcast where he, where he talks about, like, in his days, beginning to come in after a 700-game career of various different clubs, he couldn't wait to come into work. Mm. And I don't believe, we'll go on to discuss, I don't believe you would have always felt that during your professional career, long right, and successful yeah. and, yeah. you know, make people like me extremely jealous. But the academy, yeah. was it a different vibe? Was it playing yeah. for fun? Was yeah. it a buzz all the time to go in? Yeah, it, it was. But in time, one thing I realised through speaking to people across the last year, and again, it's a perspective thing, 
that academy team was the same as like a youth Sunday league team. This was our team, except we were Manchester City. So that feeling you have when you come and meet up with your friends to go and play football, mm-hmm. we were just having a more sort of like specific experience. Okay. Because like the best years for me within football were the ones where you were around people who were the same age as you because everybody got on and understood what, mm-hmm. what their state was within the world. Mm-hmm. I got, I'm then 17, 18 in the first team. And there are people who are nearly 20 years older than me who were talking about retirement. That's at a point where I'm trying to get my second game play. Hmm. You can't really have the same sort of connection. No. They've got two, three, four kids, all in different ages and all this stuff. But those academy times, they were really enjoyable. They were really enjoyable because this was like our core group of people. And we all, my academy setup was mostly people who played in Manchester. So we had a history there as well. Most people lived together. We were traveling in together. Mm-hmm. And you enjoyed it. You loved it. Because, as I say, it's peer-based. You might have the pressure of, you know, will you make it? Mm-hmm. But you're not making it at 10, you're not making it at 11, you're not making it at 12, 13, 14, 15. So there's a little golden gap where what you're doing is you're playing, playing with mates. There's a little bit of pressure. Literally, yeah. But it should be fun, particularly yeah. if, it, if, your, if your group is good and your group was good. Yeah, the, my group was good, but it was full of good people as well. Okay. And I think that's the difference because there were some age groups where they had players who were being told that they would make it and they'd be fantastic and I think the sort of ego got ahead of that yep. and I think you can find a lot of ego within, oh, that, within, that, within that youth level because you see it well youngsters aren't really equipped to be given that message exactly but I think for some of it's parents Yeah. because when you hear the parents on the sidelines saying like this, he needs giving the ball because he's the best player in this I've heard I played in the youth cup game this is, so this is under 18s now mm-hmm. and there was a guy there um, I think it was at Millwall I think it might have been Cherno Samba I've seen him recently, really stand-up guy. Mm-hmm. But back then, he was coming off the bench from Millwall in the youth court. Mm-hmm. And he came on the field and he said, just give me the ball and I'll just win this. Mm-hmm. I was like, mate, you're coming off the bench. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but he'd played for England youth under 16s. Mm. He'd been one of the like big prospect players. through The, those the name years. at the time sent shivers. And there's yeah. one other guy... Michael Owen was talked about across the whole industry and everybody in journalism knew about Michael when he was 14 or 15 yeah. and you're waiting but Jonas Samba had a similar buzz yeah, around him exactly but like if you believe that hype yeah then you become a different sort of person as you walk around because it seems like some people are just in your way and with academy with academy football as well this is why I said it's more like Sunday League not everybody had aspirations to play professionally that's the thing because not everybody can if you're in a squad of 18, now everybody's thinking this is what I want but to do. That's realism retrospectively at the time. That's, there were guys who were like, I'm just here for until I'm 16 because I'm not going to make it. No, but the reason they're there is because they were the best players for the Sunday League teams. Mm-hmm. So this is the team they've ended up on, mm-hmm. which feels like Sunday League, except they're playing at a higher level. Mm-hmm. It's almost like being sent to play the older age group in Sunday League and the like. They're there. Like, not everybody plays Sunday League to then play for Academy, to then play for a first mm-hmm. team but they're so good in Sunday League to get the jump to the next stage. Maybe some people wanted to go to university because I know some people that did that when they got to like 18, 19. And the journey for them and the aspects of what it is to be a pro, they don't love that. But playing with your peers Mm. is the most enjoyable thing you can do. And I think when you're doing well, then it speaks for itself. If you were a thumbnail sketch, one thing that looking back in the academy, you're like, how was that happening? And one thing looking back at the academy, you're like, I will take that with me. I took it with me throughout my career and I'll take it throughout my life because I'm certain there must have been both. Mm. I think it would depend who your coach was because our, my team, we were being coached by Alex Gibson. And we, were, we were good, like always listening to the coach and so on. But on the other field with uh, Frankie Bunn, the under-19s, if anybody swore, they were just doing laps around the field. 
So we'd just be doing training and look across and oh, they're getting their laps in again. There was lots of stuff like that. And you think, well, thankfully, we, you know, we weren't the type that would be doing that. Um, but it kind of taught you about consequence. You know, this is, these are the expectations and you can have a moment where you're frustrated but conduct yourself in the, in the right manner. And I think that my academy setup was good because it kept you grounded. It never praised anybody too much. It was all about the collective because then when you went into the first team, one thing which I know as a, as a fact is that there are lots of really talented people who come into first teams really early. But sometimes the thing which they think has brought them there is the thing that sort of harms them. Because if you go into a five-a-side and you score two, three goals, that's great. But if you cost your team three or four goals by not defending, the trust is gone. So a youngster might then walk away and think, I tell you what, I scored three, four goals today. I think I'm going to be involved. But the reality is they've played themselves out of the situation, out of the team. So I think the sort of grounding that that, that the academy had back then was, was, was massive. You didn't have everything. Mm-hmm. I, I think you could have had more, but you didn't have everything. Mm-hmm. And even little things like the fact that we were getting buses around. I remember the clamour on a Friday to go and get your expenses so you can get your bus pass money back. And it felt like you'd made a profit, even though it's the exact same amount of money that you needed for your bus Just pass. having the readies Just in your hand. literally feels... having money in your hand yeah. felt incredible. Being on £80 a week at the time, like, it's, so, it's the first time you're earning money, so you're excited. But it's not enough money to really say you're earning money. But the fact is, it just kept you humble, kept you moving. And I think for some kids today, like, don't get me wrong, it's AC to the academy. It, the infrastructure's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, they couldn't ask for more. But I think even though they're essentially being well looked after, the people who will make it will be the ones who would have made it without all these luxuries anyway, because they'll have the mentality as well as all the things around them. I, I, I totally accept your point, and I think you, certainly I, we're in a, an area now when we try to interpret and analyse and, and, and work out what's going on, not just in England, around the continent. The, the, the first thing is making it, but the second thing is what you're equipped with for the yeah. rest of your life. Are yeah. you, are you, I mean, for example, now, I mean, listen, I'm straying and I'm sorry. No, it's fine, straight away. You, you, given that you're a podcast, you can say stop me. Yeah, no, 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 go This off. is pish. This is I'm yours. Just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just assuming. I've just finished writing an ESPN article about, you know, Madrid had a changing of the garden in the game against City, whereby mm. but it, they started with an average age of 29. By the time the game finished, the average age was 26. They had youngsters on everywhere, and the people who were off the pitch were Modric and Casemiro and yeah. Cruz and, and Benzema. Okay, so it was a game, but it's just the first inkling of a dawn of a change yeah. about them putting more faith in youth players they want to buy Chomeni they want to buy Mbappe 22 and 22 blah 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 and then of course La Liga strikes back so at the weekend particularly Friday and Saturday there's this clutch of 40 year olds 38 year olds 36 year olds who score and assist and you're like, yeah, oh, like yeah yeah and I thought to myself mm, that didn't used to be the case in fact about a week ago that wasn't the case that you could not only play to 40 but play brilliantly like yeah. Molina does or yeah. David Silva does yeah. or and what has been bred in recent years is, is, is a species of footballers who are perma-fit. Yeah. When I was growing up, and again, there's a big age difference. When I was growing up, in the summer, you, 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 know, you put on a half a stone or a stone, yeah. and then you say, oh, that's great, yeah. because we'll get it out. And now your yeah, players not, are perma-fit, and they know how to look after themselves. And, it, and I wonder if the things now, your point about the players who make it probably would have made it. I, I guess one of the things is... They're just making it better equipped. Yeah, I, th- I think they are. They are making it better equipped because now you're being analysed all the time. I think from back when I started, the analysis was quite simple. The concept was just come back in pre-season and then get fit. But now they're putting parameters on you. Like even, say, when I was at QPR, you couldn't put on more than 
half percent body fat in the off season. Like when you're not training five days a week and playing a game, like that's actually quite a test, and it means you have to remain fit. Testimony. Exactly. You have to. You have to remain fit. <laughs> and then um, goalkeepers are getting fitter. So things like the traditions you do a yo-yo test or a bleep test, the goalkeepers come out first. I'm seeing goalkeepers in like the top ten, and that's that's blowing people's minds. Yep. And I think realistically, to think how much the game's changed, and how much say people are investing in their bodies, and say the demands are changing. Do you remember Masters football? Yes. That was 35 and above. If you did that right now with people who are 35 and above, it looked very different to people, to how it looked 20 years ago. And that's because for lots of players, they've had to spend more time looking after themselves. Yeah. And understanding their bodies. 20 years ago, it's a walking piece, isn't it? Exactly. It's about your touch and a pass and maybe a clever Ex- finish. Exactly. Nothing else. But now, as you hit 35, like, you're not broken, you're just older. So some of the people that you like, Ronaldo's thirty-seven. <laughs> Ronaldo could have been playing Masters football for two years. Mm-hmm. Imagine him playing in Masters football mm-hmm. according to the standards we saw. He do, do quite well. He do okay. Imagine he do okay. So so the game has changed, and I think it's changed for the better because you know general medicine's better as well. Mm-hmm. But the expectation's different. You are being analysed. You're being weighed mm-hmm. every day. They've got your stats for your um, GPS stuff. How far are you? Co- how much are you covering? They know what you're doing in the gyms. They're doing sort of health tests to see where you're at and all this stuff. Better so. rehab, better recuperation. Although the time yeah. we, t- we treat players like shit, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. I, th- I think we really squeeze every every last drop. But then some of those players want that to happen because it's very hard as a player to say you don't want to play. Yeah, I accept. Especially because, especially because for that player that says that, you sort of wonder if they can say it can they do it without saying it I accept your point but I think the ones that worry me most um, are, are the ones that, that change my profession and my livelihood it's not that I'm not worried about the guy who's earning a bucket Southampton yeah, or Brentford it's, it's like yeah. the elite footballers who are just treated like utter commodities yeah. and told if you're doing well like Liverpool's players you'll have, to play, you'll have to play 62 times this season and then I'll tell you what I have a World Cup every two uh, years as well as a European yeah. Championship and yeah, it's t- South it's American. A, it's, a, it's a tough gig, isn't it? Like I'm sure everybody listening is has got an opinion on this, but welfare conversations can't happen within football just because the vast majority of people, and I think I could be wrong in it, but the vast majority of people will always revert back to how much money someone makes and disregard yeah. any arguments. So <laughs> you can't. So again, this is the logic thing. Like I can't have a serious conversation about stuff like that because you just yeah. But if I was earning this. I know people who say that give that argument and I know they couldn't do a week's worth of training professionally. Yeah. Like they'd be broken. Like one week, never mind. Play every three days, play with pain, arrive well. back from a game at 3 a.m. in the play morning. Well. And play, play well. It's not just playing, it's playing well. Be at the training ground at nine the next morning, having been too full of adrenaline to sleep when you arrive yeah. home at three. So All you, of that. You get an hour and a half and then, and then, and then again, and well. again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Yeah, well. money will sort that. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, listen, it's, it's part of your future that change doesn't happen without education and things being well explained and, and maybe people hear it from me and I hope I say it articulately but it carries less weight than, a, than a, yeah. an ex-top level footballer Thank you for listening to The Big Interview it's produced by me which sounds egotistical but it's also true Graham Hunter and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at ACAST 
and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here end of the lesson. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.